Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. We begin our program with the latest on health and healing, and this comes from Shouzing People's Hospital in China, and it talks about the association between dark chocolate consumption and reduced risk of essential hypertension. That's a big deal when you consider how many Americans, for example, suffer from stable hypertension, meaning they're taking medications. It's in the tens of millions. A team of cardiologists at the hospital has found an association between consuming dark chocolate and reducing the risk of essential hypertension or high blood pressure. And it's not a lot of chocolate, like a little piece of chocolate. And I suggest you get the organic dark cacao chocolate. 70% is ideal. 80% is better, but it's a little more bitter. Most people won't like it. Stay away from those that have milk uh, products in it and lots of sugar. And unfortunately, average chocolate has a lot of sugar, a lot of dairy, a lot of chemicals. Get the raw organic. That way you'll be doing yourself a, a good favor. Also, celery seed extract is one of the best things you can take each day along with grape seed extract. Celery street seed and grape seed, both together, bring down with magnesium your blood pressure. From Henan Agricultural University, researchers found that lion's mane mushrooms can combat dementia and cognitive decline. Again, and it's not difficult to find um, lion's mane, and you can saute it. I saute it all the time. I cut it very thin. I cut garlic very thin. I cut ginger thin. I grow my own uh, ginger, and I saute it in toasted sesame oil at a low temperature to maintain the integrity of the oil. And here's a little trick. Always put a teaspoon of raw organic coconut oil in with your seasoning and your other oils because if you first put the coconut oil in and just wipe it around the skillet, that protects from the high heat and it, that oil um, and also mustard seed oil uh, these are and macadamia oil. Those are your three best oils to prevent something from burning. That's why I always put some, when I'm boiling my brown rice for a few minutes, I put coconut oil in there as well. Anyhow, by putting the coconut oil in, it protects the other oils from oxidative stress. And if you use it at a low temperature, good for you. So anyhow, you can use mushroom, mushroom, the mushroom you can also put that lion's mane into a miso soup, so you're getting good antibiotic, or probiotics, I should say. And a study published in Mycology finds that lion's mane mushroom uh, synthesizes two very important compounds for nerve growth. And these compounds are derived from the fruiting body of the mushroom. And both compounds promote biosynthesis of nerve growth factor and therefore have value in preventing and treating dementia. Something that simple. All right? So make sure you're getting shiitake mushrooms, maitake, uh, even white cap mushrooms. From the University of Barcelona, aerobic exercise can help fight liver diseases. According to a study conducted on animal models and published in the Journal of Metabolism, aerobic exercise, power walking, biking, swimming, jogging, can help fight the non-alcoholic 
fatty liver disease, the most common liver disease worldwide. By the way, talk about how common it is, it affects 24% of the global population, and it usually causes a certain stigma among the affected people. But exercise improves fatty liver disease, and that's important. So do your exercising. And it also, green juices help cleanse out the liver as well. And finally, from the Medical College of Wisconsin, meditation reduces heart disease deaths. That's very important. The Medical College of Wisconsin conducted a study about the effects of transcendental meditation on health. And researchers discovered that over the course of nine years, the group assigned to meditate saw a 47% reduction in strokes, heart attacks, and deaths. And here's one of the reasons why, but it's not this study, but this is from my own original research. When you're stressed, cortisol goes up. And when cortisol goes up, along with epinephrine, norepinephrine, catecholamines, um, adrenaline, all goes up. That creates massive amounts of inflammation, but it also creates a change in the electrical pulses to the heart. Now, if you are meditating and you just try to keep yourself calm no matter what you're experiencing, then that's less likely to occur. And when you're constantly agitated, you're constantly hyper, you're constantly acting like a victim, you're constantly walking around with this anger or resentment factor, you're killing yourself because you're changing what should be normal electrical pulses to the heart and therefore end up with AFib or tachycardia, and then you have a heart attack and stroke. So just taking your time for a moment. Something happens, you don't like it, can't necessarily control it, but you can control your outcome by simply counting to 10, breathing deep and relaxing, and just saying to yourself, calm, 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 for about 10 deep breaths, and then relax your breathing and exhale strongly. And that can suddenly bring down all of those stress hormones and not have irregular pulse electrical charges. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Before we go to our first clip, and it's a really important one, as you'll see, I have several clips that are falling all together, and they're all connected, and I'll show you why they're all connected. I just want to mention that we have now a new way of getting to the Gary and All newsletter, and it, we made it really easy. And uh, you just push a button, and it lights up, and you go right to the newsletter, and you'll have three options. One option is that you get it for free. Once a week, you get uh, a lot of the show notes and the information I give each day, but in greater depth and a lot of a lot of citations I don't have time to do. The second one is you pay a very small fee. I mean, it's tiny. And you get the newsletter every day of the week, but you also get more information. You're going to get a first look at articles. Uh, you're going to get free webinars, where normally you pay $30, you get to come for free. You're going to get uh, some lectures, 
that are not, I can't go all over the country and do lectures, but I'm doing lectures all the time on the internet, you'll get invited to those. I have a brand new book coming out. I have four new books coming out over the next 12 months, but I already have a hundred chapters finished on some of the most important issues in the world. I just finishing today one on breast cancer, but it's all brand new information. And every single one of the statements in these come from peer-reviewed literature from the National Library of Medicine. So you could take this to your doctor and say, doctor, here's other protocols, and they're all scientifically based. For example, just on one topic alone, I had over 1,000 scientific references that were reviewed one topic alone because I want the best of the best. And you're going to get that chapter before anyone else, a year before anyone else, for a tiny little fee. And then the third selection is you can just get it for a year. Again, we're talking about chump change. And, uh, and I don't get any money for this. Uh, and it doesn't cover the cost of doing it for John LaBelle. But John and I have been friends for over 45 years. And uh, he wants to keep this going. So I said, fine. So go to GaryAndAll.com or PRN.live and find information on the newsletter. Now, here's where we're going today. I want to show you how, when not challenged with facts and determination to get to the truth, bureaucracies, technocrats, corporations can do and say anything and they get away with it because the corporations have the lobbyists, the lobbyists put money into legislators' pockets, they control the outcome. If you don't want heavy, um, let's say, oversight, well, then get a lobbyist. Put money in the right pockets and you won't have any oversight. Why do you think there's no oversight of the FDA and no oversight of the CDC? Pharmaceuticals, make sure of that. Because if you knew the truth about how these organizations operate, you wouldn't be as supportive as you are, nor willing to allow yourself to be a human guinea pig for the profit of companies. Here's Josh Hawley, one of the 10 most powerful populist voices in Washington, D.C. And listen to what he's saying to this man. He wants to eliminate the 230 clause that Bill Clinton got uh, in place to protect the monopolies from any financial liability. Now, just think of it. If you take a drug and you end up with terrible side effects, you can sue the manufacturer. If you're in a car and something goes wrong with the car, it's not your fault, you can sue the manufacturer. In all other instances, you can sue a person that if you feel you were done, uh, done something that they should have checked, known about, prevented. Why not with social media? If they give you misinformation, like Wikipedia, why can't you sue them? Why, how can they continue to libel people, myself and others, because they're protected by the 230 clause? He, in a bipartisan manner, wants to get rid of that. Support that. We don't want the 230. If they're going to be held responsible and pay the cost, good. If they're not, then they're like vaccine manufacturers. No matter how many people are injured or die, you can't sue them. Now to the clip. Yes, Senator Hassan. Senator Hawley, you're recognized for your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thanks uh, to the witnesses for being here, and uh, thanks to the chairman for holding a hearing on this topic. Um, Mr. Miller, if I could start with you, you are general counsel at the Information Technology Industry 
Council, do I have that right? Correct. And I was just looking before I came over here this morning at your membership list. It's, it's quite a lengthy list of members. You have, looks like to me, members, uh, your members compose almost all of the major players in the tech industry. I mean, is that fair to say? Uh, yes, we, we, we have 80 of large global tech companies. Yeah, uh, global is the right word. Uh, Google, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon. Th those are just a few. These are the biggest, most powerful corporations in the world who are your members. Yes? Um, sure, by, by market cap, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by, by, by historical standards. I mean, these are the most powerful companies not just now, but arguably in the history of the world. And that list that I just read off there, all of those folks have stake in AI, AI technology, and stand to make billions of dollars, I think it is safe to say, off of AI. I mean, wouldn't you say that's accurate? Uh, I, I really don't know how much money any of our, our members are making or not making from AI or any other technology. Oh, wouldn't you say it starts with a B, though? I mean, we're talking about billions. AI is going to be transformative technology. You, you've, just, you've just been saying this. Let me quote you. This is from January 4th. AI continues to dominate policy conversations around the world. As AI-generated content grows in its sophistication and adoption, there's a new sense of urgency to leverage this transformative technology, right? Now, here's the next part that, that interests me. You say that, that you want to look about, to think about minimizing harms that could come from its use, including the spread of misinformation and disinformation. What did you mean by that? Um, I'm not entirely sure what you're quoting from, but it might have been a press release for our uh, ITI's January release. January 4th, ITI's new guide yeah. outlines AI content authentication tools and policy approaches. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in that context, uh, that guide uh, looks at watermarking and other techniques to authenticate AI content. Um, and, you know, certainly misinformation and disinformation has been cited as uh, well, what, what an issue that, 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 that could be amplified by artificial intelligence. What, what, what do you mean by misinformation, disinformation? What do you have in mind? Um, I mean... Misinformation, uh, it, it, I'm, I'm glad you're asking that because it's important to distinguish between the two. I think misinformation is um, kind of uh, accidentally incorrect information, whereas disinformation is information that is, uh, you know, specifically uh, incorrect or actually, you know, uh, maliciously intended to, to, to be false to, you know, and, and, and harmful. I have to tell you, it, it sounds like some gobbledygook to me, but, but let me tell you what I think would be useful is if maybe you would get your technology companies to focus on their chatbot stopping encouraging people to kill themselves. Like this, for instance. This is from April 4th of last year. This is a chatbot that encouraged a user to commit suicide. And tragically, he did. This is his widow who reports that her husband had a conversation with this chatbot and it asked him, if you wanted to die, why didn't you do it sooner? And went on to give him instructions on how to kill himself. Or we also had recently the infamous case of the chatbot urging a reporter, of course, sadly for the chatbot, it didn't know it was a reporter, to break up his marriage. This is from February of last year, Bing's AI chatbot. You're married, but you're not happy. You're married, but you're not satisfied. You're married, but you're not in love. And the chatbot goes on to encourage this individual to get a divorce. Do we really want 
chatbots telling people to kill themselves. I mean, is that, is that really, is there a social good in that that I'm missing somewhere? I, I certainly don't think we want chatbots doing those sorts of things. I, I mean, but, you know, artificial intelligence can do a lot of good things as well. So I, I do think that we want to be, uh, you know, focused in addressing, uh, you know, issues uh, and, and while also allowing artificial intelligence to, you know, do things like help, you know, cure cancer and things like that. Well, AI is going to cure cancer? It, it certainly could be a tool to help to help uh, with various different uh, cures in the medical field. Absolutely. So are you, are you saying that we have to accept AI chatbots encouraging people to kill themselves uh, for the possibility that, that maybe it'll cure cancer? Uh, I'm not saying that at all, but it, it doesn't, okay, uh, but I do think that we do, don't do want we to. Want, uh, do we want AI chatbots that, that encourage people to commit suicide? Do we want them being able to talk to, to teenagers? Why, why should an AI chatbot be able to talk to a 13 or 14 year old? Why, why is that a good idea? Again, there are there are many good positive things that can come from AI. Well, do you want AI encouraging a teenager? What if this had been a teenager, who the AI chatbot was encouraging to kill himself? Let, let me ask you this. Let me, let me make it more practical. Shouldn't a parent, who has a kid, that has an encounter with a chatbot like this, shouldn't that parent be able to sue, the AI company, and hold them accountable in court? Uh, I mean. Under the current law, uh, you know, that's probably not uh, allowable. Why, uh, exactly. And right. why should that be the case? Why should these, the biggest, most powerful technology companies in the history of the world, why should they be insulated from accountability when their technology is encouraging people to ruin their relationships, break up their marriages, and commit suicide? I think I, I assume you, that you're you're alluding to Section 230. Sure, I am. Yeah, I mean, you know, Section 230 has a, has a long history of uh, you know, again, you know, helping uh, to uh, encourage technological development. Um, it's protected by uh, you know the Supreme Court, including a, a recent Supreme Court case. Oh yeah, and I've read you, believe me, I've read your amicus brief in that case. I've got it right here, where you argue for the most robust interpretation of Section 230 possibly imaginable. What 230 has absolutely for sure done is help the companies who are your members pad their profits. I mean, it is a massive subsidy of the federal government to your companies. But, but let's just make this very practical. Why shouldn't these companies, Google and Meta and Microsoft and the rest, why shouldn't they, be, why shouldn't they say, you know what, we are absolutely willing to allow a parent whose child is harmed by our technology we are absolutely allow, willing to allow that parent to have their day in court. Is that too much to ask? Again, have, I have not discussed that particular question with the companies. I'm happy to have that discussion. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm asking for you. your opinion. I'm asking for your opinion. Do, do, you think, uh, do you think that a parent ought to be able to get into court and have their day in court if their child is told by a chatbot how to kill themselves? I, I, I don't really have... An, an opinion on that. Sure you do. You, d you just signed an amicus brief that argued for the most robust interpretation of Section 230, which is just translation, the most robust protections for the most powerful, profitable corporations in the history of the world. You just signed it. So clearly you have a lot of thoughts on Section 230. Let me, let me distill this even further. I'm almost done, Mr. Chairman. Senator Blumenthal and I, who you were just talking to a second ago, he and I have a bipartisan bill that would say that parents and others who are harmed by AI should be able to get into court and have their day in court 
against your members. Just like any American can do with any other company, right? I mean, if Johnson & Johnson sells a drug that poisons people, like it did, by the way, with their baby powder once upon a time, parents can go to court. With your companies, as you just said, they can't. They can't. So would you, would you support our bill? Our bill is a carve-out for people who've been harmed by AI technology to be able to go to court. Would you support that? I haven't had a chance to review the bill. Um, you know, I, what I would say is that uh, th- there are also other equities at play in this discussion, including the First Amendment. I mean, you know, no, the companies, first, why, companies why, do have t- a First Are you telling me right? this is First Amendment protected? This is First Amendment protected speech? A chatbot saying you should kill yourself? Is that your position? Uh, it's not my position, but okay. I don't think the, the, the question's been resolved. What do you mean the question's been resolved? All right, Mr. Chairman, I thank you for your time. Um, Mr. Miller, all I can say is, is that I think your position is just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Hall. I would agree with him. And again, please reach out if you concur that the government should not be protecting these corporations, and that's exactly what it does. Senator Schumer and all the people in the House and the Senate, they're in the pockets of the lobbyists, thousands of different lobbyists. Why do you think that so many people have such a low quality rating about members of Congress, and yet 95% get reelected, the incumbents, because they get a lot of money. Half their time is spent going to parties, for fundraising, and you got to see it. When we have time, I will give you an idea what it's like in a day in the life of a legislator. I've known a lot of legislators. I was on on uh, PFW in Washington, D.C., our sister station, for 36 years every day till I quit. And uh, I met a lot of people in Washington at every level of government who would share information with me. It's a seedy cesspool of despicable sociopaths. There are exceptions, but you don't have a lot. Right now, we have a window where some people are coming forward, like Holly, and putting these people on the spot. So just ask yourself, you represent, you make a lot of money representing all these tech companies. These tech companies, then we have played the tapes. We have had the witnesses under oath, like Matt Taibbi, saying that the FDA the CDC, uh, CIA, FBI, Homeland Security, they contact Google, Facebook, and they say, here's what we don't want printed. We don't want this article. That's honest information that was in the article. They want disinformation, meaning intentionally misleading the public. If you doubt me how much the public's been misled, let me show you this. This is a clip you have not seen, you didn't know existed. And uh, this is about Anthony Fauci, all right? And what's important, listen carefully what he's saying. It's only 31 seconds long. Laura Ingram is, is playing it. But this is the truth about Anthony Fauci because he's saying it for himself. Listen to what he says. Now, this newly resurfaced interview reveals what he really wanted out of all those COVID mandates. Once people feel empowered and protected legally, you are going to have schools, universities, and colleges are going to say, you want to come to this college, buddy? You're going to get vaccinated. It's been proven that 
when you make it difficult for people in their lives, they lose their ideological bull and they get vaccinated. Do you hear what he just said? And that's exactly what the government did. Weren't they arresting people, throwing people in jail because they had the temerity of questioning the safety and efficacy? They didn't want it for themselves? No. You made it terrible for people. Therefore, they became devoted, almost disciples. I'm going to show you a lot of things you didn't know. This is an explosive report. Did Nikki Haley shield Boeing where she sat on the board of directors, from safety checks. A whistleblower says yes. Well, then why would anyone vote for her for any reason if she's just a neoliberal um, corporatist acting as if she's a populist, which she is not? Let's go to the clip, please. After a cabin door panel blew off of an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 9 flight earlier this month, the aircraft company, Boeing, says it will add further quality inspections for the 737. In addition to door plug inspections, Boeing teams will add about 50 other checkpoints during the production process. But new documents show that 2024 GOP candidate Nikki Haley allegedly helped Boeing kill shareholders lobbying transparency initiative, which would force executives to more fully disclose whether and how the company influenced safety regulators, according to The Lever. Government filings show that while serving on the board of Boeing in 2020, Haley helped exterminate the initiative that was designed to force the company to more comprehensively disclose its spending to influence politicians and safety regulators, per The Lever News. And before the Alaska Airlines debacle, one of the employees at Spirit, which reportedly manufactured the door that blew off of the plane, told company officials about an excessive amount of defects and believed it was just a matter of time before a major defect escaped to a customer. Documents allege that multiple former employees at Spirit warned corporate officials about safety problems and were told to falsify records, according again to The Lever. Joining us now to weigh in is Senior Fellow for Aviation and Travel at the American Economic Liberties Project, Bill McGee. Welcome, Bill. Thanks very much for having me on. So first, I, I want to talk first and foremost, about the kinds of warnings that employees tried to raise with the company against this exact sort of thing happening and why it was that these defects seemed to uh, proliferate in the first instance. Well, you know, we've seen this movie before, unfortunately, and there is a long history of whistleblowers within the Federal Aviation Administration, within the airlines, within Boeing, within the entire aerospace sector that have you know, given us warnings in advance. There's an expression that's used at the FAA among the, the, uh, the rank and file workers and within the airline industry, uh, that the FAA is the tombstone agency. And what's meant by that is that um, very often the government is uh, hesitant to act until after a tragedy, usually a fatal tragedy. Uh, thankfully, what happened over Portland wasn't, uh, didn't involve any fatalities, but it very well could have, as we all know, with that hole ripped in the side of the fuselage. Um, I wasn't surprised to hear about Spirit, quite frankly, and I wasn't surprised to hear about some of the whistleblowers within Boeing, because uh, I've been talking to whistleblowers for years, and unfortunately, we just don't seem to get traction ahead of these events. It, it takes something 
awful that you know becomes front page news to get the, to get the needle to move. I mean, I listened to you uh, talk up to um, on the Levers podcast actually about this a little bit, and I was really shocked to discover exactly who has been making some of these parts. You you explain that one of the parts of the plane had been outsourced to a surf shop. Can you help people understand how irregular that is and what the safety concerns raised by that sort of outsourcing are? Sure, sure. And to be clear, the uh, the surf shop wasn't involved directly in this this incident with the Max, but that's the type of uh, environment that we're in. This is an industry that is so heavily outsourced. First of all, just for starters, I don't know that most Americans are aware of this. Uh, it's a big part of my book, Attention All Passengers. Every airline in the United States today in 2024, without exception, every single U.S. airline outsources some or most or virtually all of its aircraft maintenance. This is work that used to be done in-house by licensed FAA mechanics in their own facilities here in the United States with FAA oversight right nearby, with um, drug and alcohol screening, with security background checks. And now that work is being done largely in places like El Salvador, Mexico, Brazil, Singapore, China. Um, there's outsourcing at every level of the airline. You, you just, I mean, to put it in the most uh, common terms, when you walk up to a, an airport counter and you're talking to someone and they have an airline uniform on and a name tag and it has the airline logo on it, they may very well not be working for that airline. They could be working for an outsourced company. When you call a call center and then you pay a fee to talk to someone. Um, I went to India a few years ago, about 10 years ago, and I, I spoke to the people that were talking, you know, on behalf of U.S. Airlines, United, American. Um, the outsourcing also extends to the manufacturing side, to Boeing. Spirit used to be a part of Boeing. They have this supply chain of, of uh, outside companies. And what you were referencing was, um, when I was working on my book, I, I tracked down uh, five levels, five degrees of outsourcing. An airline uh, outsourced the maintenance to a facility. The facility said, well, we don't have the people to do this. They outsourced it to someone else, to someone else. And then finally, um, because the composite materials that are used, uh, we used to say metal on airplanes, but now it's, a, it's a, you know sophisticated composite materials. They're similar to what are uh, often used in surfboards, one of these outside repair stations sent an aircraft part to a, a surf shop in Southern California. And an FAA inspector showed up there and said, do you have any aeronautical training? Do you have any aviation background? He said, no, dude, I'm just, you know, I wax surfboards. He said, okay, well, give me that part and don't ever do this again. That's what we're talking about here. There's, you know, the question is who's in control? When you hear a big name like Boeing, you think, well, okay, for better or worse, they're on top of these things and they're, you know, they're, they're, they have control over what's going on. They don't. There's so much outsourcing. And the scariest part of all is that the Federal Aviation Administration, which is charged by Congress and is there to protect all of us, they don't have a good handle on who's doing the work, where the work is being done, when it's being done. And so we basically have a self-policing system. And that's how these problems keep occurring. Okay, but it gets worse. I'm going to share with you actual amounts from the federal government that are paid to the airline industry. They wouldn't help a small business with a dollar, or you and I, but passenger air carriers receive $25 billion, cargo air carriers $4 billion, contractors $3 billion, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 enacted in, on December 27, 2020, created the Payroll Support Program Extension, or PSP-2, for passenger air carriers and certain contractors. 
and they gave $15 billion to airlines, $1 billion to contractors, and the ARP was enacted on March 11, 2021, authorizing the Treasury Department to give our money, our taxpayer money, for additional assistance to passenger air carriers, not to passengers, and to contractors that receive financial assistance under PSP2. And they gave $14 billion to the airlines and $1 billion to the contractors. Now, mind you, if you're a restaurateur and you have, because of weather or because of pandemic, you don't have customers coming in, you don't go to the government and says, uh, I'm short $1.5 million, I'm losing money, uh, give me $1.5 million, you're not going to get anything. But if you're an airline, yes, all the airlines do this. The Pentagon cannot account for $6 trillion, and they don't have to. They've not been able to have a budget that was, uh, that was measured by proper accounting standards, and uh, this is the amount you were given, and this is the amount you spent, Here's how much you're short or over. So then what happens is at one time, and here's the larger picture that we just refuse. This is where we end up with a nation of nice people, good people who are always compliant and blind to be obedient to their, to their uh, belief systems. No one sees that there was a time in America where everything was made to America, almost everything. We had no unemployment. We had no poverty. We had... We had uh, as a as a country, uh, there were there was poverty on the Indian reservations, but at least we had full employment. That's when we created our highway systems and our infrastructures, built the Empire State Building. We did a lot of wonderful things, but it was done here. We made our steel, U.S. steel, Bethlehem steel, and then in the 1970s, everything changed because of five people. One of two of them are still alive. Uh, Carl Icahn, a T. Boom Pickens, who just died last year, and uh, Saul Steinberg, who died, and uh, Ivan Botsky, who's, I think he's passed, and, uh, and one other, and uh, Michael Milken. They wanted to come up with schemes about why should we work the way it's always worked? Why not off, off, you know, offshore the, uh, the job, just keep the brand and that began. And then now it's the equity partners. And they own thousands of businesses. Why do you think a lot of them closed, like Kids R Us? That was Bain Capital. There are thousands of these companies that were well-run, gave a living wage, helped the community. And then people came in like Mitt Romney and a whole score of others. And they just eviscerated. They gutted our entire manufacturing production. Then we were left with cities that had people but no employment to match the people's needs. And people look at a city that's not coming back, it'll never come back in your lifetime, Camden, New Jersey, and others. You know, East Memphis and uh, East St. Louis. You know, these, these, Gary, Indiana, um, these are not coming back. Why? Because why have one company that everyone is working together and you have quality control at every stage when you can off-link this to a thousand separate contractors and then you buy into every one of those contractors. So instead of it costing one amount to make a plane, 
you now cost three times that amount, five times that amount, 10 times that amount. But then you have hundreds of thousands of contractors because nobody does anything anymore. It's all outsourced. That's the problem and we're not looking at it. Until we look at the real problem, we can't solve it. By the way, tonight, you're going to learn the truth about what really happened on January 6th. You won't want to miss that. You're going to see videotape showing it was set up. Over 200 different uh, federal agents were agent provocateurs. They wore the outfits. They were the ones demanding you know, violence because the average person showed up wasn't violent. In fact, they didn't get violent. In fact, the, the people, the perpetrators, you can hear them in the body cam cameras saying, we've got to do something and so shoot them. So a guy gets shot. They still didn't react, the public. And then they were tear gassing. They still didn't react. And this has all been expunged from the January 6th McCarthyite, Stalinistic, uh, Black uh, Star Chamber hearings. Those people should all be held accountable and be put in prison for the rest of their life. Those are the real culprits. In any case, because we have such a corrupt political system and it rots from the head down. So now I'm going to play another clip. And this is, this is a clip that's going to take us. Let me just see here. This clip's going to take us near the end of the program. We might go past our, yeah, we're going to go past our goodbye moment for WBI. So I'll just say our BAI audience, uh, we're leaving you in about six minutes, but we're going to continue to top the hour because at some point, the average person, decent, honorable, wants just to live a, a simple life. And they're competing with people who want control over them. Who wants control over you? Who wants to know everything you're doing? Wants to know if all your medical records? Wants to know the amount of money you have in the bank? Wants you to only be able to use a digital currency? Must have a passport that is a digital passport to go and shopping? Wants to live in a 15-minute city? and wants to be able to create a pandemic per year when no pandemic existed. And yet, there are 16 million dead, Ameri uh, dead people in the world and 1 million dead Americans because of the Anthony Fauci's and how they played people. So when is this silent majority going to awaken? First, they have to stop being cowards. And they have to stop being obedient to the rise of authoritarianism in every field of life. Let's go to the clip. Accessible by individuals like you. Become a supporting member and access our growing library of is.com slash members. Authoritarianism in religion and science, let alone politics, is becoming increasingly accepted. Not particularly because so many people explicitly believe in it, but because they feel themselves individually powerless and anxious. So what else can one do except follow the mass political leader? or follow the authority of customs, public opinion, and social expectations. The American psychologist Rollo May wrote these words in 1953, and in the decades that followed, the West tiptoed into tyranny. A mass surveillance state was established. Free speech gave way to increasing levels of censorship. Statist bureaucracy and stifling regulations invaded ever more areas of life and tax rates reached levels that in the past would have caused a revolution. However, in recent years, this tiptoe into tyranny has turned into a sprint, as some Western countries are flirting with full-blown totalitarian rule. But the existence of power-hungry and psychologically disturbed politicians who desire total control is not what makes our situation particularly precarious. 
for such individuals exist in all ages. Rather, our troubles lie with the fact that very few people possess the one virtue that can turn the tide back in the direction of freedom, that being the virtue of courage. And as Alexander Solzhenitsyn warned in 1978, a decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West in our days. Should one point out that from ancient times declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end? In this video we are going to explore how a hyperconformity and blind obedience has infected the West and, in the process, crowded out the cultivation of courage. We will discuss how a widespread cowardice is permitting the rise of authoritarianism, and how a rebirth of courage is the antidote to our precarious political predicament. The pathological conformity that infects the West is generations in the making and the result of a confluence of factors. It is driven by a value system in which social validation occupies a preeminent position. It is furthered by the use of social media and the fact that success on these platforms is achieved by virtue signaling and conforming to the moral flavors of the day. It is also a product of an education system which deifies the democratic ideal and promotes the rights of the majority over the rights of the individual. These factors, combined with others, has created a society of hyperconformists. And as Rollo May explained, the opposite to courage, in our particular age, is automaton conformity. One of the ways that Western conformity manifests is through a blind obedience and a pathological need to follow rules. Most people believe that to be a good person is to be a compliant person, and to do what one is told by those in positions of political power and their lackeys in the media and celebrity culture. In acting with blind obedience, the conformist fails to differentiate between morality and legality, and so remains willfully ignorant of the fact that government rules can be immoral, driven by corruption, and that sometimes they pave the way for individual and social ruin. Or as Rollo May explains, Our particular problem in the present day is an overwhelming tendency toward conformity. In such times, ethics tend more and more to be identified with obedience. One is good to the extent that one obeys the dictates of society. It is as though the more unquestioning obedience the better. But what really is ethical about obedience? If one's goal were simple obedience, one could train a dog to fulfill the requirements very well. To see other people exercise independent judgment, self-responsibility and self-reliance disturbs the conformist's belief in the value of obedience and so threatens their sense of self. It is not the case, therefore, that the conformist obeys while permitting others the freedom to make their own choice. Rather, as Stanley Feldman explains in a paper titled Enforcing Conformity, people who value social conformity support the government when it wants to increase its control over social behavior and punish nonconformity. Valuing social conformity increases the motivation for placing restrictions on behavior. The desire for social freedom is now subservient to the enforcement of social norms and rules. Thus, groups will be targeted for repression to the extent that they challenge social conformity. When a majority advocates for the government enforcement of conformity, a society places itself on what the psychologist Irvin Staub called a continuum of destruction. As the government uses coercion and force to punish a non-compliant minority, the majority rationalizes their support of such authoritarian measures by further demonizing the non-compliant, thus leading to increasingly severe government measures. 
One psychological consequence of harm-doing is further devaluation of victims. People tend to assume that victims have earned their suffering by their actions or character. In several countries in the 20th century, such as the Soviet Union, Turkey, Germany, Cambodia, and China, government measures such as banning certain minority groups from restaurants, pubs, cafes, and other public spaces, imposing curfews, expelling them from their jobs, forcing them to pay fines, and restricting their freedom of movement and assembly, functioned as the first steps on a continuum of destruction that ended in mass scapegoating, mass imprisonment, and mass murder. In his book The Psychology of Good and Evil, Irvin Staub elaborates on the psychological mechanism that facilitates a continuum of destruction. How does harmful behavior become the norm? Doing harm to a good person or passively witnessing it is inconsistent with a feeling of responsibility for the welfare of others and the belief in a just world. Inconsistency troubles us. We minimize it by reducing our concern for the welfare of those we harm or allow to suffer. We devalue them, justify their suffering by their evil nature or by higher ideals. A changed view of the victims, changed attitude toward that suffering, and a changed self-concept result. To counter the continuum of destruction that is a product of too much conformity and too much government force, more people need to act with moral courage. Moral courage entails a willingness to encounter risks so as to defy immoral orders, reject authoritarian government control, and to stand up for the disappearing values of truth, freedom, and justice. And as Rushworth Kidder explains in his book Moral Courage, where there's no danger, there's no courage. Anyone can endure security and well-being. The real challenges arise in the face of hazard. So it is with moral courage, where danger is endured for the sake of an overarching commitment to conscience, principles, or core values. Some acts of moral courage are accompanied by mild risks, such as being ridiculed, insulted, or ostracized. If, for example, we speak out against a status quo belief in the presence of a group of conformists, or if we refuse to adhere to social practices or mandates that are immoral or idiotic, we may lose friends or attract choice words from the obedient, but this is a small price to pay in exchange for doing what we believe is right. For as Rollo May explains, the hallmark of courage in our age of conformity is the capacity to stand on one's own convictions. However, sometimes acts of moral courage are accompanied by more grave risks including but not limited to the loss of employment, physical or financial penalties, imprisonment, or in some cases, even death. Of all the agonizing ethical dilemmas facing humanity, writes Rushworth Kidder, few are more wrenching than the choice between what's right for the world and what's right for you and your family. Carl Jung called the men and women willing to confront great dangers in defiance of tyranny the true leaders of mankind. And to learn about the mindset of one of these leaders, we can turn to the story of Viktor Pestov. In 1967, Pestov was a 20-year-old living in the Soviet Union. His family was well off by Soviet standards, and his mother was a high-ranking member of the KGB. Yet Pestov could not avert his eyes from the boot of tyranny that was crushing society, and so he took a keen interest in political matters. And when Soviet tanks rode into Czechoslovakia and violently stamped out the human rights protest known as the Prague Spring, Pestov told his friend, we must do something about this. Pestov and his brother set up a clandestine group called Free Russia, and he warned those who joined that they would likely be arrested within the year. 
Yet all agreed that the battle for freedom just Well said. At some point, you have to risk something by standing up and speaking your mind. And right now, we don't have any national program to do that. Maybe the elections will do it. Maybe when people boycott Budweiser, they're doing it. Or Disney, they're doing it. And because that's one thing we can do. Stop supporting with our money those brands, those corporations that do not honor our needs. Again, listen tonight. You're going to hear an altogether different approach, an actual accurate one, and the legal basis for bringing those people to justice who fomented that uh, false flag operation. Have a nice day, everyone.